might help if I unmute. Hello and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. Uh, today we are doing, I believe for us, is part six, um, but I think we're just going to start titling it by chapter. <laughs> um, this is part two of chapter three of Emma Goldman's Anarchism and Other Essays. Um, we really fell off with our theory streams for a while, but um, we're getting that back up. And this episode marks the first time in almost a month that our patrons will get an episode early. Um, so we are using the audio book from Audible Anarchist, which can be found on YouTube. Um, and we are reading along with the link from the Anarchist Library. Or at least I am. I'm not sure if that's the same one that Trish is using or not. <coughs> yes, it is. Um, Indeed. Um, the links to both of those will be available in the description. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's enough of an intro to me. Sounds good. Nailed the awkward level we usually shoot for. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, uh, I will add to this intro. If uh, The reason that we do these theory streams is so we can kind of like bring mon modern context to it and discuss these ideas and, you know, what we think they're doing right, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if you want to join the conversation with us, you can join us right in the comments on Facebook or YouTube. Um, or you can comment on the Facebook page or message the Facebook page and just let us know what you think. Um, and if you like what we're doing, you can support us financially at patreon.com slash for we are many. Now I'm done with my you really want to get engaged. You can even go to our page, www.forwearemany.org, and create a user account there to be able to comment on videos and articles to engage with us there. That's true. All right. Well, um, I guess we're going to be diving right back into the middle of Chapter 3, The Psychology of Political Violence. Exploited gentlemen, there are two classes of individuals. Those of one class, not realizing what they are and what they might be, take life as it comes, believe that they are born to be slaves and content themselves with the little that is given them in exchange for their labor. But there are others, on the contrary, who think, who study, and who, looking about them, discover social iniquities. Is it their fault if they see clearly and suffer at seeing others suffer? Then they throw themselves into the struggle and make themselves the bearers of the popular claims. So I just want to interject here. Um, she's kind of, well, I guess I can't say she's echoing Che's sentiment. It would be the other way around, if anything. But is it their fault if they see clearly and suffer at seeing others suffer? Right. I mean, this goes back to Marx himself saying an injury to one is an injury to all. Yeah. And um, I think that no matter if we're talking about 
various forms of socialism or if we're talking about uh, communism or if we're talking about, I mean, even just most left-wing libertarians, um, that, that concept uh, bleeds through to most ideologies on the left. Yeah. Agreed. Back to the text. Gentlemen, I am one of these last. Wherever I have gone, I have seen unfortunate's bent capital. Everywhere I have seen the same wounds causing tears of blood to flow, even in the remoter parts of the inhabited districts of South America, where I had the right to believe that he who was weary of the pains of civilization might rest in the shade of the palm trees and there study nature. Well, there, even more than elsewhere, I have seen capital come like a vampire to suck the last drop of blood of the unfortunate pariahs. Then I come back to France, where it was reserved for me to see my family suffer atrociously. This was the last drop in the cup of my sorrow. Tired of leading this life of suffering and cowardice, I carried this bomb to those who are primarily responsible for social sufferings. I am reproached with the wounds of those who were hit by my projectiles. Permit me to point out in passing that... If the bourgeois had not massacred or caused massacres during the revolution, it is probable that they would still be under the yoke of the nobility. On the other hand, figure up the dead and wounded on Tonkin, Madagascar, Dahomey, adding thereto the thousands, yes, millions of unfortunates who die in the factories, the mines, and wherever the grinding power of capital is felt. Add also those who die of hunger, and all this with the assent of our deputies. Beside all this, of how little weight are the reproaches now brought against me? It is true that one does not efface the other. But, after all, are we not acting on the defensive when we respond to the blows which we receive from above? Right. I know very well that I shall be told that to end myself to speech for the vindication of the people's claims. But what can you expect? It takes a loud voice to make the deaf hear. Well said. Too long have they yep. answered our voices by imprisonment, the rope, rifle volleys. Make no mistake, the explosion of my bomb is not only the cry of the rebel valiant, but the cry of an entire class which vindicates its rights and which will soon add acts to words. For be sure of it, in vain will they pass laws. The ideas of the thinkers will not halt, just as in the last century all the governmental forces could not prevent the Diderots and the Voltaires from spreading emancipating ideas among the people, so all the existing governmental forces will not prevent the Recluse, the Darwins, the Spencers, the Ibsens, the Mirbeaus from spreading the ideas of justice and liberty, which will annihilate the prejudices that hold the mass in ignorance. And these ideas, welcomed by the unfortunate, will flower in acts of revolt, as they have done in me, until the day when the disappearance of authority shall permit all men to organize freely according to their choice, when we shall each be able to enjoy the product of his labor, and when those moral maladies called prejudices shall vanish, permitting human beings to live in harmony, having no other desire than to study the sciences and love their fellows. Okay. I guess I just want to uh, interject here to... Um 
talk about like the concept that she's laying out here ultimately i think is uh propaganda of the deed uh loud voice to make the deaf hear yeah. and uh for better or for worse i think people understand actions better than they understand words agreed um, that being said, the, the back half of it's a little idealistic, I feel. Um, but, I mean, that goes that goes back to what we talked about today, revolutionary optimism. You have to maintain a positive outlook if you want to be productive. Yeah. <coughs> Understanding where to place your goals, because creating that change around you is achievable. It's where to focus your energy. And what we can build, how we can make this shit better. Agreed. Um, I was working on that. <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the text. I conclude, gentlemen, by saying that a society in which one sees such social inequalities as we see all about us, in which we see everyday suicides caused by poverty, prostitution flaring at every street corner, a society whose principal monuments are barracks and prisons, such... Does this sound familiar? Yes, that's why I'm nodding my head. Yep. This sounds like way too familiar, right? Yep. Absolutely. A society. Yeah. It's it's kind of wild to be honest. Like how little has changed since the turn of the 19th century. Or sorry, the turn of the 20th century. Um she would probably be a guest to see the sheer number of fucking prisons that have popped up since then. Oh yeah. Like she was, she was writing this before for-profit prisons. Mm-hmm. Long before. Yeah. Yeah. It must be transformed as soon as possible on pain of being eliminated, and that speedily from the human race. Hail to him who labors by no matter what means for this transformation. It is this idea that has guided me in my duel with authority, but as in this duel I have only wounded my adversary, it is now its turn to strike me. Now, gentlemen, to me it matters little what penalty you may inflict, for looking at this assembly with the eyes of reason, I cannot help smiling to see you, atoms lost in matter, and reasoning only because you possess a prolongation of the spinal marrow, assume the right to judge one of your fellows. Ah, gentlemen, how little a thing is your assembly and your verdict in the history of humanity, and human history in its turn is likewise a very little thing in the whirlwind which bears it through immensity, and which is destined to disappear, or at least in order to begin again the same history and the same facts, a veritably perpetual play of cosmic forces renewing and transferring themselves forever. 
Will anyone say that Bayon was an ignorant, vicious man or a lunatic? Was not his mind singularly clear, analytic? No wonder that the best intellectual forces of France spoke in his behalf and signed the petition to President Carnot asking him to commute Vaillant's death sentence. Carnot would listen to no entreaty. He insisted on more than a pound of flesh. He wanted Vaillant's life. And then the inevitable happened. President Carnot was killed. On the handle of the stiletto used by the attentator was engraved significantly, Vaillant. So, again, we're, we're seeing propaganda of the deed play out. Uh, right. The French state was trying to crack down on, on an anarchist that had set off a bomb. And then the president was assassinated in the name of the bomber who he would not commute the sentence for. So um, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Um, yep. Yeah. That. Everything you put out there will come back to you. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And uh, I mean, back to the revolutionary concepts, uh, you know, put forward by the Cubans or by the Black Panther Party. You can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. Right. And I mean, of course, my examples are more communistic in nature than anarchistic, but the point remains very much the same. I mean, let's not forget that we're fighting the same fight. Right. <laughs> us the need for and the call for the unity here because there's more things we have in common that we want than the things we don't and getting back to the revolutionary optimism as Kwame Ture said yeah because it's so fucking important that our unity represents what we stand for not what we stand against Agreed. Um, all right, well, back to the text. Santa Caseria was an anarchist. He could have gotten away, saved himself, but he remained. He stood the consequences. Ballsy. His reasons for the act are set forth in so simple, dignified, and childlike manner that one is reminded of the touching tribute paid Caserio by his teacher of the little village school, Ada Negri, the Italian poet, who spoke of him as a sweet, tender plant of too fine and sensitive texture to stand the cruel strain of the world. Gentlemen of the jury, I do not propose to make a defense of my deed. Since my I began to learn that present society is badly organized, so badly that every day many wretched men commit suicide, leaving women and children in the most terrible distress. Workers, by thousands, seek for work and cannot find it. Poor families beg for food and shiver with cold. They suffer the greatest misery. The little ones ask their miserable mothers for food, and the mothers cannot give them because they have nothing. The few things which the home contained have already been sold or pawned. All they can do is beg alms. 
often they are arrested as vagabonds. I went away from my native place because I was frequently moved to tears at seeing little girls of eight or ten years obliged to work fifteen hours a day for the paltry pay of twenty centimes. Young women of eighteen or twenty also work fifteen hours daily for a mockery of remuneration. And that happens not only to my fellow countrymen, but to all the workers, who sweat the whole day long for a crust of bread, while their labor produces wealth in abundance. The workers are obliged to live under the most wretched conditions, and their food consists of a little bread, a few spoonfuls of rice and water, so by the time they are thirty or forty years old they are exhausted and go to die in the hospitals. Besides, in consequence of bad food and overwork, these unhappy creatures are by hundreds devoured by pellagra, a disease that, in my country, attacks, as the physicians say, those who are badly fed and lead a life of toil and privation. So, Dude. I'm not saying that our conditions are in every way is bad, but the parallels cannot be uh, ignored. I mean, we might have a lot better than a little bread, a few spoonfuls of rice and some water, but what can poor people honestly afford to eat? Cheap processed garbage that's going to kill them by the time they're 40 or 50 anyway. Yep. Um, so, I, I mean, the parallels between, what was this, 1910, I think we discussed in an yeah. earlier piece. Um, remember right, yeah. So we're talking like 111 years ago. And in terms of working conditions in this country, they've changed, but they haven't gotten better. Not by much. There's seldom few things that have helped change anything, like child labor laws and minimal restrictions when it comes to the working conditions and what you're exposed to but overall not a whole hell of a lot has changed right i, I mean okay so we don't see little girls of eight or ten years old working because right. of the child labor laws that you just mentioned but i mean young women of 18 or 20 working 15 hours a day that's that's reality that's today yeah to barely be able to keep a roof over their head or to feed their child that they don't get to see. Right. Because they're too busy working. Fuck. Anyway, back to uh, his statement to the jury. I have observed that there are a great many and many children who suffer whilst bread and clothes abound in the towns. I saw many and large shops full of clothing and woolen stuffs, and I also saw warehouses full of wheat and Indian corn, suitable for those who are in want. And on the other hand, I saw thousands of people who do not work, who produce nothing and live on the labor of others, who spend every day thousands of francs for their amusement, who debauch the daughters of the workers, who own dwellings of forty or fifty rooms, twenty or thirty horses, many servants." In a word, all the pleasures of life. Once again, sounds familiar. Yeah, actually, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you know, food deserts are a pretty decent example of this. You go through right. urban areas and there's people that can't afford housing or that can't afford transportation, rather, um, that 
have to survive off of whatever shit food they can buy from the fucking gas station. Right. Or I mean, well, I mean, fuck dude, you and I have both lived in Flint for a long time. I mean, we know exactly what that's like. Right. And I can't imagine what it was like after the Kroger on the East side closed. Um, thankfully a different grocery store did pop up in there. Um, so that one is still active. But there's a lot of other stores that nothing came back to fill their place. And right. so it's been on like the dollar stores and gas stations, party stores, etc. to start carrying food too, to even be able to make sure that people in the neighborhood have at least some fucking canned or frozen processed shit that they can eat. At least they're trying, but it's still not healthy food. Right. It's not the same right. as that fucking grocery store there where, like, even if you like some of that shit, you could, you know, grab a few things that are pre-made. But for the most part, you're going to be grabbing stuff that you're actually cooking yourself, not processed stuff. If you have an actual grocery store. Right. Um, but, I, I mean, yeah, that back to the point, though, like, in urban centers, there's... <laughs> Massive areas, especially in impoverished areas that don't have grocery stores, that right. don't have medical facilities. And then you go out to the suburbs and, you know, like there's... They're on every corner. Yeah. I, I mean, like where I'm at, for example, which is suburban, I wouldn't say it's ritzy suburbs, but it's suburban. Um, you know, like just within a half a mile from here, we've got a Walmart and a Fry's. Uh, you go a little bit further and there's an Albertsons, you go, you know, like the, the point is, is that there's options. Right. And I, I mean, even during the height of the COVID pandemic, when shelves were fucking empty, I mean, for most of your shit, if it wasn't toilet paper, you could just go to another store and find it. That's not the case in urban areas. And then if we get further out of the valley, out like towards where I work, for example, where the houses cost four or five times as much. Uh, you know, like there's two ritzy neighborhoods, gated communities that are right. They have basically their own little fucking plaza uh, where they have a Safeway and a couple of restaurants and a Walgreens and a gas station. So they don't have to go into the, the main part of the city of Peoria to go get food. The point is, is that if that was a community of color, you can bet your ass that they'd be lucky to have the Circle K, let alone the Walgreens and the Safeway. Right. Hi, puppy. My dog insists on saying hi. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, anyway, I will uh, let, this, let this person continue their statement. <laughs> I believed in God. But when I saw so great an inequality between men, I acknowledged that it was not God who created man, but man who created God. And I discovered that those who want their property to be respected have an interest in preaching the existence of paradise and hell and in keeping the people in ignorance. Not long ago, Valiant threw a bomb in the Chamber of Deputies to protest against the present system of society. He killed no one, only wounded some persons. Yet bourgeois justice sentenced him to death, 
and not satisfied with the condemnation of the guilty man, they began to pursue the anarchists, and arrest not only those who had known Voyant, but even those who had merely been present at any anarchist lecture. So, the government did she obviously here, they're talking about France, right? But let's not forget that a decade after this, scare the United States was doing the exact same shit that they're talking about right here. Right. Right. And it, and it wasn't just anarchists. It was anarchists, socialists, communists. I mean, fuck, dude. Lucille Ball was interrogated by the Department of Interior, I believe it was, twice about her communist involvement. My God. I, I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> they really went nuts with that shit. Really did. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck happened to this place being of freedom? <clears throat> like, you want to fucking demonize people for their political perspectives? You know, um, especially when they all boil down to have an ethical standard for shit to be run by. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's fucking unnerving, like, how much this country has targeted people who are on the actual left just for being there, just for not wanting to participate in capitalist exploitation. Agreed. Back to the text. Yep. Did not think of their wives and children. It did not consider that the men kept in prison were not the only ones who suffered and that their little ones cried for bread. Bourgeois justice did not trouble itself about these innocent ones, who do not yet know what society is. It is no fault of theirs that their fathers are in prison. They only want to eat. The government went on searching private houses, opening private lectures and meetings, and practicing the most infamous oppressions against us. Even now, hundreds of anarchists are arrested for having written an article in a newspaper or for having expressed an opinion in public. Lost your audio completely. I forgot to unmute. Okay. Didn't hear anything you said. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like to in today's America, we might uh, not necessarily have to worry about the government searching private houses, except for when we do, or, you know, opening private letters, just text messages and emails, um, forbidding lectures and meetings, or, you know, um, basically forbidding gatherings unapproved gatherings in public places. I mean, literally all of this shit still happens today. Right. Total fucking violations of your fucking liberty as a human being. Agreed. Anyway, back to the text. <laughs> Gentlemen of the jury, you are representatives of bourgeois society. If you want my head, take it. But do not believe that in so doing you will stop the anarchist propaganda. Take care, for men reap what they have sown. Procession in 1896 at Barcelona, 
a bomb was thrown. Immediately three hundred men and women were arrested. Some were anarchists, but the majority were trade unionists and socialists. They were thrown into that terrible bastille, Montjuich, and subjected to most horrible tortures. After a number have been killed or gone insane, their cases were taken up by the liberal press of Europe, resulting in the release of a few survivors. Isn't that always the, the role that the, um, that the liberal press tends to take? I mean, like, even today, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't free Leonard Peltier. We definitely should. He's a political prisoner and has been for over half a century. But that being said, um, you know, like, they'll bring up these issues way too late, and it might result in the release of a few surviving people. But the point is, is that these political prisoners shouldn't be prisoners in the first place. Precisely. I mean, especially in, in that example, you know, a bomb was thrown and over 300 people were arrested. I mean, come the fuck on. Right. Like, just for being in the area? You fucking kidding me? I mean, that being said, we still see a lot of that when it comes to police repression, too. Uh, mass arrests have not gone out of style in any way, shape, or form. Nope. Um... And, I mean, the press coverage of it, generally speaking, with the exception of some independent outlets, has been atrocious. They don't tell you how many people are what. I mean, or if they do, they don't tell you for what. It'll just be like, oh, there was 106 arrests last night. Not saying what for. Right. Or barely alluding to it. Gotta keep the mystery alive. For disturbing the peace. Right. Fuck. Anyway. Using your First Amendment rights too loudly? Yeah. Or in a not approved First Amendment zone. I'm just saying, dude, if, if that if that happened in almost any country in Europe, shit would have been on fire that day. Yep. Free yep. speech zones? Are you fucking kidding me? Yep. France would what what was party. it recently that happened in France? They made it illegal to record police and then well people started setting police precincts and shit on fire and within three days like the law was overturned and the prime minister resigned. I mean come yep. the fuck on. That's come the fuck on, what are we doing? Right. They're getting <laughs> shit done. We're sitting here like Oh, can we talk about this and come to a bipartisan agreement, maybe, to even get it up for a vote? Uh-uh. That shit's weak. It's weak. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Back to the tech. Really responsible for this revival was Canovas del Castillo, Prime Minister of Spain. It was he who ordered the torturing of the victims, their flesh burned, their bones crushed, their tongues cut out. Practiced in the art of brutality during his regime in Cuba, Canovas remained absolutely deaf to the appeals and protests of the awakened, civilized conscience. So I'm going to make this one short, but... It's important for context's sake to remember 
that this art of brutality during his regime in Cuba, that's prior to and part of the reason why the Cuban Revolution happened. Right. They were overthrowing a fucking tyrant. Well, I mean, they were overthrowing a different tyrant, but yes, exactly. The conditions had not improved from what they're describing right there. Right. They, they were overthrowing a tyrannical system itself. Exactly. Like, Fuck this enough. Exactly. Back to the text. In 1897, Canovas del Castillo was shot to death by a young Italian, Angelillo. The latter was an editor in his native land, and his bold utterances soon attracted the attention of the authorities. Persecution began, and Angelillo fled from Italy to Spain, thence to France and Belgium, finally settling in England. While there he found employment as a compositor, and immediately became the friend of all his colleagues. One of the latter thus described Angelillo. His appearance suggested the journalist rather than the disciple of Gu. His delicate hands, moreover, betrayed the fact that he had not grown up at the case. With his handsome frank face, his soft dark hair, his alert expression, he looked the very type of the vivacious southerner. Angelillo spoke Italian, Spanish, and French, but no English. The little French I knew was not sufficient to carry on a prolonged conversation. However, Angelillo soon began to acquire the English idiom. He learned rapidly, playfully, and it was not long until he became very popular with his fellow compositors. His distinguished and yet modest manner, and his consideration toward his colleagues, won him the hearts of all the boys. Angelillo soon became familiar with the detailed accounts in the press. He read of the great wave of human sympathy with the helpless victims at Montjuich. On Trafalgar Square he saw with his own eyes the results of those atrocities when the few Spaniards who escaped Castillo's clutches came to seek asylum in England. There, at the great meeting, these men opened their shirts and showed the horrible scars of burned flesh. Angelillo saw, and the effect surpassed a thousand theories. The impetus was beyond words, beyond arguments, beyond himself even. I can Senor imagine. Antonio Canovas del Castillo, Prime Minister of Spain, sojourned at Santa Aguada. As usual in such cases, all strangers were kept away from his exalted presence. One exception was made, however, in the case of a distinguished-looking, elegantly dressed Italian, it was understood, of an important journal. The distinguished gentleman was Angelillo. Signor Canovas, about to leave his house, stepped on the veranda. Suddenly, Angelillo confronted him. A shot rang out and Canovas was a corpse. The wife of the Prime Minister rushed upon the scene. Murderer! Murderer! she cried, pointing at Angelillo. The latter bowed. Pardon, madame, he said. I respect you as a lady, but I regret that you were the wife of that man. <laughs> Calmly, Angelillo faced death. Death in its most terrible form, for the man whose soul was as a child. He was garroted. His body lay sun-kissed till the day hid in twilight, and the people came, and pointing the finger of terror and fear, they said, There, 
the criminal, the cruel murderer. I have to Google garroted. Garroted, whatever. Yeah, I'm curious about that too, because that's not something I'm familiar with either. It's a Spanish word. Uh, it's a weapon, usually a handheld ligature of chain, rope, scarf, wire, or fishing line used to strangle a person. Okay. That's like the, of like just the word garrot is. I what came to my mind was a, a wire, but I, I wasn't. I was trying to wrap my head around how would they just by wire but if it applies to other things too that you can chain somebody up by the throat with the okay i can see what they mean that's right. fucked up. that's fucked up yeah yeah it is wow back to the text Oop. how stupid how cruel is ignorance it misunderstands always, condemns always. A you know, to be fair, like that last couple of lines there can apply. And I mean, no disrespect by this, but that is something that a lot of Internet anarchists could learn from that line right there. How stupid, how cruel is ignorance? It misunderstands always and condemns always. Right. And I mean, it's not just anarchists either. That applies to nihilists. That applies to libertarians. That applies to liberals. Um, but in terms of people on the left, I, I feel like specifically online anarchists can learn a lot from that. The ones that are actually organizing in their communities generally don't misunderstand things because they've actually had these conversations before. But anyway, um, but the, the, the point is though, um, that everybody can learn. I'm still like, uh, I, I guess I just want to rewind a little bit because, um, Angio Lilo I mean, you know, the the fucking balls on that guy. I mean, he knew that he was facing death, and yet he didn't run. He knew that he was going to face death, and, you know, he was just like, pardon, I respect you as a lady, but I regret you were the wife of that man. Um, right. Kind of says it all. Like, you have my condolences for being married to him. Like, damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but th that's the thing. There they're talking about the ignorance of the masses. You know, people pointing pointing at the guy saying, "There's, there he is, the, the cruel murderer. Right. But, I mean, in his eyes, how many lives did the person that he murdered, murder. Right. That's what a lot of people want to fucking ignore. So there's, there's a reason why he killed him. Right. 
And, and I mean, you know, like it may come down to like, well, was it in the end? Was it a was it was it a productive act? And a whole discussion could be said about that. Ultimately, <laughs> it's it's not my preferred method of approach. But being in that situation is is something that I have to sympathize. I mean, we're talking about people that had been oppressed their whole lives for a meager existence. I mean, just like you and I are. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there was a lot of people that, you know, felt the same way about the murder of Fred Hampton. You know, I mean, obviously they're, they're fucking ill-informed and that's, you know, like not the point that I'm trying to make, but I'm willing to bet that people were all like, oh, see, see, he was a bad guy. In fact, I'd be willing to bet on it because I mean, look at what our generations learned about the Black Panther Party when we were being Oh, they're black supremacists. They want to eradicate white people. All this fucking dumb shit. Right, which couldn't be further from the fucking truth. Right. Like, they actually barred people who had those kinds of perspectives from joining the Black Panther Party. They wanted to work in coalition with people across the fucking rainbow. Thus, the Rainbow Coalition. (laughs) Yep. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, wait a fucking minute here. How about we get some truth and reality out there? Agreed. Anyway, back to the text. Remarkable parallel to the case of Angelillo is to be found in the act of Gaetano Bresci, whose attendant upon King Umberto made an American city famous. Bresci came to this country, this land of opportunity, where one has but to golden success. He, too, would try to succeed. He would work hard and faithfully. Work had no terrors for him if it would only help him to independence, manhood, self-respect. Thus, full of hope and enthusiasm, he settled in Patterson, New Jersey, and there found a lucrative job at six dollars per week in one of the weaving mills of the town. Six whole dollars per week was no doubt a fortune for Italy, but not enough to breathe on in the new country. He loved his little home. He was a good husband and devoted father to his bambina, Bianca, whom he adored. He worked and worked for a number of years. He actually managed to save one hundred dollars out of his six dollars per week. Bresci had an ideal. Foolish, I know, for a working man to have an ideal. The anarchist paper published in Patterson, La Question Sociale. Every week, though tired from work, he would help to set up the paper. Until later hours he would assist, and when the little pioneer had exhausted all resources and his comrades were in despair, Bresci brought cheer and hope, one hundred dollars, the entire savings of years. That would keep the paper afloat. In his native land people were starving. The crops had been poor, and the peasants saw themselves face to face with famine. They appealed to their good king Umberto. He would help. And he did. The wives of the peasants who had gone to the palace of the king held up in mute silence. Surely that would move him. 
and the soldiers fired and killed those poor fools. You know, I would not be all that surprised if um, something like that were to happen today. Right. I really wouldn't. I mean, how is that any different than a homeless mother being in a in a homeless camp and being swept out by force by the cops? I mean, they might not, you know, point and shoot, but they're also taking the only fucking shelter they have. They're also throwing away all their belongings, such as blankets and food. Yep. I mean, it, it might not be as extreme as the the soldiers firing on them and killing them, but actually that's arguably more humane than what happens in America. It's fucked up. It's fucked up the whole way around. Anyway, back to the text. Greshi, at work in the weaving mill at Patterson, read of the horrible massacre. His mental eye beheld the defenseless women and innocent infants of his native land slaughtered right before the good king. His soul recoiled in horror. At night he heard the groans of the wounded. Some may have been his comrades, his own flesh. Why, why these foul murders? The little meeting of the group in Patterson ended almost in a... Bresci had demanded his hundred dollars. His comrades begged, implored him to give them a respite. The paper would go down if they were to return him his loan. But Bresci insisted on its return. How cruel and stupid is ignorance. Bresci got the money, but lost the goodwill, the confidence of his comrades. They would have nothing more to do with one whose greed was greater than his ideals. On the 29th of July, 1900, King Umberto was shot at Monza. The young Italian weaver of Patterson, Gaetano Bresci, had taken the life of the good king. Patterson was placed under police surveillance. Everyone known as an anarchist, hounded and persecuted, and the act of Bresci ascribed to the teachings of anarchism as if the teachings of anarchism in its extremest form could equal the force of those slain women and infants who had pilgrimed to the king for aid as if any spoken word ever so eloquent so i i was a little slow on pausing that but um so like i had alluded to this earlier um but as if the teachings of anarchism in this case, or the teachings of fucking Marxist-Leninism uh, Marxist in another case, as if these in their extremist forms could equal the force of those slain women and infants. And basically, I think what she's getting is they went to the king and they asked for help and they were killed for it. Um, ultimately, the system i think was trying to defend itself and yet again every action has an equal and opposite reaction so yeah. like okay they took out the king but was the power structure significantly altered i mean they might have went to uh, 
Exactly. Exactly. They might have went to a more liberal setup than a than a monarchy, but um, well, let's also not forget that fascism was born in Italy, not what twenty years after this. Yeah. Um. And all that does is exist to fucking keep imposing those same types of things. Under different systems besides monarchy. Right. Wielding the same power. Indeed. Anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> could burn into a human soul with such white heat as the lifeblood trickling drop by drop from those dying forms. The ordinary man is rarely moved either by word or deed and those whose social kinship is the greatest living force need no appeal to respond, even as does steel to the magnet, to the wrongs and horrors of society. If a social theory is a strong factor inducing acts of political violence, how are recent violent outbreaks in India, where anarch has hardly been born? More than any other old philosophy, Hindu teachings have exalted passive resistance, the drifting of life, the nirvana, as the highest spiritual ideal. Yet the social unrest in India is daily growing, and has only recently resulted in an act of political violence, the killing of Sir Curzon Wiley by the Hindu Madar Soldingra. So, um, it's important to point out that that is when India was occupied by the British, um, which is no longer the case. But that being said, there is still a high, a fairly high level of unrest in India to this day. Um, the forces of the left versus the forces of reaction have been, figuratively speaking, duking it out since the shit that they're talking about. And really, since before that, because how did all these problems get there to begin with? The British. Right. Um, <clears throat> that being said, I mean, there is more than one active Communist Party in India. Uh, you know, there is the Marxist Party and the Maoist Party. And then I believe there is some sort of reformist Communist Party there, too. But the point is, is that when the farmers protests began... The reason we didn't see it on American media is because there was thousands of people marching on the fucking Capitol with hammer and sickles flying. Yep. Some of them even driving their motherfucking tractors. It was beautiful. Some of them. Hell, it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. <clears throat> <clears throat> Those laws were finally overturned. I, I know that we never did an update on uh, the situation in India, but those laws were overturned, and it does seem like it's been more peaceful. Um, that being said, the fight's not over. That was that was simply a catalyst. It's not the only problem. Right. Um, I mean, especially now that the people have seen how the government is going to act when they try to redress grievances. Yep. Forewarned um, is forearmed. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
Back to the text. If such a phenomenon can occur in a country socially and individually permeated for centuries with the spirit of passivity, can one question the tremendous revolutionizing effect on human character exerted by great social iniquities? Can one doubt the logic, the justice of these words? Repression, tyranny, and indiscriminate punishment of innocent men have been the watchwords of the government of the alien domination in India ever since we began the commercial boycott of English goods. The tiger qualities of the British are much in evidence now in India. They think that by the strength of the sword they will keep down India. It is this arrogance that has brought about the bomb, and the more they terrorize an unarmed people, the more terrorism will grow. We may deprecate terrorism as outlandish and foreign to our culture, but it is inevitable as long as this tyranny continues, for it is not the terrorists that are to be blamed, but the tyrants who are responsible for it. It is the only resource for a helpless and unarmed people when brought to the verge of despair. It is never criminal on their part. The crime lies with the tyrant. I just want to reiterate that last part. The crime yeah. lies with the tyrant. Yep. From the free Hindustan. Even conservative scientists are beginning to realize that heredity is not the sole factor molding human character. Climate, food, occupation... Nay, color, light, and sound must be considered in the study of human psychology. If that be true, how much more correct is the contention that great social abuses will and must influence different minds and temperaments in a different way? And how utterly fallacious the stereotyped notion that the teachings of anarchism, or certain exponents of these teachings, are responsible for the acts of political violence. Once again, the crime lies with the tyrant. Right. Anarchism, more than any other social theory, values human life above things. All anarchists agree with Tolstoy in this fundamental truth. If the production of any commodity necessitates human life, society should do without but it cannot do without that life. That, however, nowise indicates that anarchism teaches submission. How can it, when it knows that all suffering, all misery, all ills, result from the evil of submission? Goddamn right. Has not some American ancestor said, many years ago, that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God? And he was not an anarchist, even. He wasn't even a leftist. <laughs> Who was it that said that? Um, I'm going to have to Google it. I should know it. I should know it. I want to say... Well, I'll just... Uh, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Thomas Jefferson. Okay. That's what I thought. That slave-owning motherfucker. Yeah. Ah, <clears throat> oh, man. 
We had a Thomas Jefferson quote in one of one of the old band songs. Yeah. I didn't even when we wrote that, I didn't even know that he owned slaves. Hadn't had your bubble burst yet, huh? <laughs> I mean, I guess not. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't even think to ask. And it's like given the period of time that it was still legal, you can almost guarantee that if they're a politician, they got money, they own land, and they own slaves. Yeah, I mean, really, out of the people that we recognize as founding fathers, I think the only one that didn't own slaves was Ben Franklin. And he wasn't even part of the fucking government. Right. Anyway. Everyone else, though, full of fucking hypocrisy when they talk about freedoms and resisting tyranny while they're tyrannical themselves in their own fucking personal lives. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the quote that we had in that song could have definitely been turned against him as well. What was it? The I don't tree even... of liberty must be watered by the blood of tyrants. Ooh, Except for, you yes. know, we, we changed the enunciation so it flowed better, but... Yeah. Okay, I recall that now. Yeah, it was in the breakdown for uh, liberty or death. <laughs> to be fair... um, at the time, I didn't know that he owned slaves either. So, right, you know, it was a point of ignorance that uh, we just did not get a proper fucking education when it comes to any of that. We got taught American exceptionalism that is false. Yep. All right, now for the last little bit here. I would say that resistance to tyranny is man's highest ideal. So long as tyranny exists in whatever form, man's deepest aspiration existed as man must breathe. Compared with the wholesale violence of capital and government, political acts of violence are but a drop in the ocean. That so few resist is the strongest proof how terrible must be the conflict between their souls and unbearable social iniquities. High strung like a violin string, they weep and moan for life, so relentless, so cruel, so terribly inhuman. In a desperate moment the string breaks. Untuned ears hear nothing but discord. But those who feel the agonized cry understand its harmony. They hear it in the fulfillment of the most compelling moment of human nature. Such is the psychology of political violence. I kind of want to reread that last paragraph. High strung like a violin string, they weep and moan for life. So relentless, so cruel, so terribly inhuman. In a desperate moment, the string breaks. Untuned ears hear nothing but discord. But those who feel the agonized cry understand its harmony. They hear in it the fulfillment of the most compelling moment of human nature, such as the psychology of political violence. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's like an eerily accurate metaphor. Yeah. And once again, sounds familiar. Still applies today. 
She had such a beautiful way of getting her points across. She was a very fucking eloquent speaker. Punches you right in the fucking soul. Agreed. Um, well, that brings us to the end of chapter three. So, uh, two weeks from the day that you see this on uh, Facebook and YouTube, we will be doing chapter four. Um, and the off weeks for the Emma Goldman pieces, the, the opposite weeks are uh, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice. Um, and of course, if you're a patron, you're probably going to get these episodes early. No, probably about um, it. Let's get it on there. <laughs> amen to that. Uh, we can be found, well, frankly, all over the fucking internet. <laughs> right. We, uh, we have, around. what was that? I said we get around. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, fertilizing the entire interwebs with communist and anarchist thought. <laughs> well said um, if you like what we're doing and you want to contribute financially uh, patreon.com slash for we are many uh, we're on tiktok and instagram at for we are many podcast we have um, our website www.many.org um, or for we are many podcast on youtube and just plain old for we are many on facebook we also have the uh, Education and Discussion Facebook group. Um, yeah, feel free to join the conversation whenever you can. Hell yeah. 